This is Cody Cast, the Care of the Elderly podcast for debate, discussion and analysis of issues related to geriatric and general medicine. Uh, I'm Mark Garside and joining me for this Cody Cast are my fellow elderly care registrars um, from the North East, Dr. Pete Brock, and uh, making his Cody Cast debut, Dr. Francis Collin. Good evening. Uh, Good evening. And joining us as our geriatric giant guest specialist today is Dr. Ian Wilkinson. Hi, Ian. Hi there. So today we're going to be talking about orthogeriatrics, but as always, we're going to kick off with our opening question, which this time is, what is your biggest pet hate when watching medical dramas? You've all had at least a couple of weeks to think of the answer to this. Um, Francis, why don't you, <laughs> why don't you take, the, uh, take the stage and tell us? Uh, okay, um, so my biggest pet hate is that all the doctors that look too handsome uh, and clean and and I always think that at the end of a night shift I as a medical registrar look dreadful and sweaty and pale uh, and they probably should too. I think that's an excellent point. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. I hate them. <laughs> uh, m- mine is, is really quite simple which is it reminds me of work. <laughs> I remember we've talked about this before. Yeah. You're not a fan of medical TV shows. No, right? I don't like medical TV shows so that's probably my pet hate. Your pet hate about medical dramas is that they exist, yes. basically. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, Ian, did you have one? Um, I, well, yeah. So, so mine's a, a pet hate, but also um, it's a bit odd. So, so the, it's it's Scrubs. I love Scrubs. It's the only one that I watch. But at the beginning, the X-ray goes up the wrong way around, and I completely get one. <laughs> But it really bugs me. <laughs> you think the number of times they put that X-ray up there, somebody would spot that it was so, the wrong way around. Exactly, and somebody would would put it right. Yeah, no, that's the only, that, that's my pet hate with medical dramas. Yeah, the the medical advisor on that show. Yeah, what was he doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I'm with you there. I love Scrubs. Um, we, I think, we've talked about this on a, an earlier episode of the show when we talked about favourite medical shows. Um, mine's going to have to go to the CPR technique. And this isn't just in medical dramas, it's it's whichever show you happen to be watching. Yeah. If there's an instance where somebody's doing CPR, um, I mean, you, you know what it's like when we get trained, they drill it into us, you know, you keep your, your elbows locked and your, your arms straight. And obviously, you know, <laughs> artistic license in the fact that they can't do genuine chest compressions on what I assume are live actors yeah. uh, <laughs> for risk of sending them into cardiac arrest. But, you know, that's what I that's what I like to sit back on my sofa and tut at them for their poor technique with with, <laughs> with CPR. On that point, can I add a second one? Oh, and on. that's, that's, that's that's shocking non-shockable rhythms um, <laughs> that, that yeah. constantly happens. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm going to go and add a second one as well. What's <laughs> the subject of rhythms? The way that the the, the flat line in TV shows mm. makes me think that the the monitor is disconnected. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, it is. It is because yeah. flat lines, of course, aren't really yeah. flat lines. Yeah. Okay, I think yeah. we better stop there before we before we spend the whole podcast <laughs> talking about that. Okay, so we're really here today to talk about the subject of orthogeriatrics. So this is slightly different from the way we've done. Uh, the podcasts in the past, which have been a bit more subjective. So we're here to talk mainly about a, a clinical topic. Um, we've got a, a, a few discussion points to go over, but um, why don't we start by asking Ian, as our resident expert, to tell us what is orthogeriatrics in, in your view? You're an orthogeriatrician, aren't you? I'm an orthogeriatrician, yeah. So, um, I, well, orthogeriatrics is, is the care of um, complex frail elderly patients who happen to have broken their hip um, is, is pretty much how it is 
in the UK at the moment. Um, we have about 300,000 fragility fractures of one form or other per year in the UK, and somewhere between 60 and 70,000 of those are patients who have broken their hip, their neck of femur. Um, and in most UK units these days, um, they come under the auspices of the orthogeriatrician. So we are come through the geriatric uh, training model, which I never thought I had to explain to people, but I've had two or three people over the last week come up to me thinking I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and, and those... <laughs> Those of you that don't well, take it personally, I was going to say anyone that knows me knows that, that that's the last thing you ever want me doing is, is anywhere near anything like that. Um, so yeah, so we come through the the geriatric training model, and we're interested in the perioperative and postoperative care and rehab of patients who've broken the hip. Okay, and um, I mean the three of us who are on this side of the conversation talking to you, we've all done ortho geriatrics jobs as part of our. Um, uh, only care training um, mm. presumably you did the same when you were training as well before you became a consultant yes yeah what was yeah. it about that particular specialty that made that the one for you i think it's i think it's the the variety that you get with orthogeriatrics so even though you're dealing just with hip fractures i think the variety within that because you have your you know really quite sick acutely unwell patient um who you're looking after when they first come in then you have this sort of unwell person that you then do a pretty horrendous, difficult procedure on um, with all the added physiological stress that that brings. And then you've then got the the sort of the rehab side of things and the discharge planning uh, and the ongoing follow-up with the bone health side of stuff. So so actually, I think it's the, it's the whole spectrum. You have everything from the acute medicine, the perioperative interaction with lots of different other groups of health professionals and then you've got the rehabilitation afterwards so you have that that, that whole spectrum that i think the only other bit of geriatric medicine you really get that in perhaps is stroke you know with the hyperacute stuff um other than that often geriatrics these days is is you know you have your acute take and then it'll be a different group of patients that you're looking after on the ward well actually i wanted to bring up what it was like working on an orthogeriatric ward as an fy1 um and the role that the orthogeriatrician played in that um which, uh, although you didn't mention it there, I I, I imagine is a um, getting to mentor and, in a way, look after those FY1s who are on the <laughs> orthopaedic wards who are often left to look after um, very unwell patients um, with um, seniors who are away in theatre or uh, away doing other things. And I remember feeling like, wow, yes, the orthogeriatrician is here. Thank God. <laughs> I need some help. Um, and... I remember as, uh, learning an awful lot um, from the orthogeriatrician doctors that I encountered as an FY1 when I was doing orthopaedics and thinking then what an important role they played in the care of these patients and also what I learned from them um, at a sort of stage in your training where any sort of senior doctor input you're probably going to learn from um, because you're so new to so much of it. Um, and I'm getting that chance now when I'm working as a registrar to try and um, mentor and teach those junior doctors in that environment. I really enjoy. I was going to say, look at you now. Here you are. So they obviously made a good impression. <laughs> yeah, you are doing what you do. Um, so I, I was thinking about um, the difference between orthogeriatrics and and other consultant physician jobs. Um, is that you don't often have any juniors, any medical juniors uh, on your team. So you have your orthopaedic F one. You have the orthopaedic junior doctors around the place. 
Sometimes you have a registrar, but not always. A lot of the time there's no middle, uh, no middle ground. So it's, it's interesting about how you have to try and uh, design a, um, a system where that works safely for these complicated, medically unwell people. Mm. Um, without, you know, normally you'd have your medical SHO who'd be making sure all the blood tests were done and the uh, initial treatments were started and things. Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily have that on of geriatrics. You've got your orthopedic houseman who might not notice or might not know very much about how to manage somebody who's really ill. And then you've got you as the as the senior registrar consultant uh, and nothing in between. So I think that's a, a challenge of its that's unique to orthogeriatrics. I feel very lucky having heard that because I've got I've got four SHOs and and, and yeah um, and and I I actually have very little contact with the orthopedic SHOs other than um, sort of in the fracture meeting in the morning and with sort of a li- liaison service for their non hips um, but some of the other units around here is very much of that model that you describe yeah that's really interesting I've never worked in a model that that, that you've just described um, I mean I suppose on the back of what Pete and Francis were saying, um, it's very easy, particularly with this, but this topic that we're talking about to, to slide into bashing orthopedic surgeons, which, yeah. uh, um, you know, it's all a bit of fun, but clearly they do a fantastic job and we respect what they do, but the, the whole idea behind an orthogeriatric service, um, is that it's getting the people looked after by the right specialist in the, in the right context, isn't it? So, yeah. um, it's, it, it, it's very much a joint care model. Ian, just see a, a situation developing in the future where um, older patients with fragility fractures get admitted to a geriatrics ward and the, the surgeons uh, visit them there and then just uh, take them away for their operation. Or would you prefer to see a system that is that follows the model that we have at the moment but perhaps develops that a bit further? Um, I think it very much depends on the on on the surgeons that you've got in the unit that you're working in um and i think you need their input early on um and you need sort of a close working relationship with them and i think the joint care model fosters that um, and whatever model you pick it it's got to have that working relationship with the surgeon so it slightly depends on on how your surgeons want to play it but i, I envisage in the uk um, over time, probably orthogeriatrics taking more care of the patients and the surgeons, as you say, um, becoming a bit less involved in the, the aftercare and the joint care models. Okay. So you can't really do um, a show about orthogeriatrics um, or, or you can go to a talk, a presentation about orthogeriatrics without hearing about the blue book. Um this has been around a few years now, and it's been the sort of thing that, as I've come through my training, it's just been accepted that it's been there, and we're all following these principles mm-hmm. of best practice. But I suppose it's only relatively recent, isn't it? It's sort of seven years is, is nothing really in the, the landscape of the, the NHS or models of care. Yeah, well, I was um, so I've I've only been a consultant for a few months now. Um, so going back to when I was an orthopedic uh, SHO. We um, very much looked after the patients uh, on our own, and that was pre. Um, it was, well, it's just just about as the blue book came out, actually, just before the blue book came out, um, and there was a sort of a, an ortho geriatrician who who did some liaison work once a week, um, really just looking at bone health 
and sort of any acute medical problems. Um, and and you look at the the unit that I'm in now. You look at that model and flip it to how we are now. And there's been a complete sea change, and it's and it's entirely been driven by the blue book and then the the national hip fracture database that came after it. Um, and so it's it's completely revolutionised the quality and standards of care that patients with hip fractures ha- have these days. So before going to the the main standards that are involved in the blue book, um, I've got a little game for my two registrar colleagues who are sitting here <laughs> quietly paying attention. <laughs> oh you haven't prepared for this, and I hope you didn't read the statistics that were on my, my list before. <laughs> so this is a test of how much you may have learned or taken in through your geriatrics placements. Mm-hmm. The ahead. mortality after hip fracture at one month, do you know what it's estimated at? I'm going to, shall we have a guess, right? I'll have a guess you go higher or lower. Okay. I'm going to go, what, now? Um, oh, that's a good question. No, this was estimated in the blue books. This is 2007. I'm going to go 30%. Uh, I was going to say the exact same number. Um, <laughs> higher. Well, it's around thirty. It's around thirty <laughs> percent. You, you can't see this now. Well, this is audio, but science celebration complete. Okay, fine. But I mean, that's thirty uh, percent. Is you know a third of patients. That's that's huge, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Enormous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Interestingly, just a question: Do you, has there been a change in the mortality since? Blue book and the recommendation. You know, I did look for that in the National Hip Fracture Database, but I, I couldn't find it. Okay. Reading it today before this. Do you know that, Ian? Do you know if those numbers um, have improved in the last uh, seven or so years? Yes, I think they have. I think, I'm just trying to remember what it says. Uh, I think we're running at about 10% at the first month and about 30% at a year, mm. I think, yeah. is, is pretty much where we're up to at the moment. We'll play another one before we move on. <laughs> the, percentage of, uh, the percentage of older people following a hip fracture who started off at home and get and got discharged. So again, this is from the Blue Book, two thousand and seven, and ended up getting discharged in nursing or residential care. I would say it's quite high as well, forty percent. I'm going to go lower. Do you, want, do you want to specify or just no, lower? No, 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 it's so it's, it was estimated at ten to twenty percent. So okay. I, I was going to say that's still quite high, but yeah. <laughs> now that you've guessed forty percent, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually sound as high as that. Okay, um, disappointingly, I don't I don't have the up to date figures for that either. Um, but I, I mean, I just wanted to I don't want to to fill this with stats, but I thought those were two quite powerful mm. ones um, in terms of making people realise the uh, you know the significance of this. Uh, event, you know, people falling and breaking their hips uh, in terms of what it means to their lives. I think the it's difficult to underestimate the the impact of, of breaking a hip, um, and the the mortality is really a manifestation of the patients that you're uh, the patients that are falling in order to break their hip. You know, the, the old adage that that the, the hip, hip fracture is a is a surgical complication in a in a medical patient is is really really true you know these these are patients who i think regardless of the, the hip fracture have a relatively high mortality at a year anyway um and the hip fracture really is is sort of an added insult on top of that that frailty fitting back into what you were talking about last time um you know these, these patients are pretty much exclusively frail i think what i'd like to do now if it's okay is just go through the the six uh best practice principles from the blue book and then open them up to comment in terms of whether or not you think this is uh, anecdotal. So not looking at the the numbers particularly, Mm -hmm. but in your experience, how likely you think they are to happen and what the barriers are to providing them and what people could do to help provide them. Okay. So 
The first one of the national targets is all patients with hip fracture should be admitted to an acute orthopaedic ward within four hours of presentation. Um, so I'll comment on that. I think that, um, how to phrase that? I think it's difficult to achieve. Um, I think we're getting there, um, but I think that's the one bit that, um, if you look through the, the hip fracture database, um, that's the one bit that I think um, a lot of units really struggle with. Um, and I know it, I mean, it's something that we find quite difficult. Um, we get there, but it, but it's, it, it requires a lot of planning. Um, and there's a lot of procedural stuff in that, in that you have to have, you know, your, your patient pathways very clearly delineated. You've got to practice them. You've got to run through them. Um, you've got to have, um, ideally you need ring fenced beds with, you know, a sort of a, uh, like a hotbed, um, for your, for your newly admitted patients. Um, and then you always run into the trouble that, you know, if you, if you account for one or two people a day and you can cope with that, and then suddenly you get a run of four or five in one day and, and that, that uses the entirety of your bed stock. Um, and then moving patients from your hip fracture unit to somewhere else so that you can get people in to the orthopedic unit is never desirable because then, you know, you increase the delirium risk um, and all the sort of the complications we all know about. I think it's worth mentioning why why it was set as a target, which I assume without knowing that um, it's because that you're trying to get in, them into an environment where they can be best cared for. And it's, it's really a nod to the quality of nursing and the quality of the early surgical input, the early anaesthetics when you're considering their pain relief as well. That mm. by getting into that specialist unit as quickly as possible, that's why we're trying to do it. It's it's not to try and clear some space in A&E, but it's actually because they benefit from being in that environment. Mm. And there are a lot of very well <coughs> set up environments for them that they go into, as you said, having that sort of the hotbed. I've worked in units that have that system um, and it gets them into an environment where they're, they're well looked after quickly. The things that the, the nurses there are focusing on are the pain relief, but also the skin care. Um, and, and continence issues as well um, around that time are really important because these are people who can't move and they are in agony and they are really distressed and often their family are as well. Um, it's worth thinking about you know improving services in A and E. If you're recognising that you can't get everyone up to your orthopaedic ward necessarily, those things need to be a focus um, wherever the patient is. You know we need to take the care to the person as opposed to it's great for the people who get there, but everybody else is disadvantaged. Yeah. I mean, I can see all the advantages of having that there as a target. The only thing I'd say, plain devil's advocate, is I have more experience with stroke medicine, but there's a very similar target with stroke. Uh, and one of the problems you find rushing people onto the stroke unit is uh, stroke mimics. Um, and we have a lot of people there. And I'm not saying that uh, you get as many hip fracture mimics because I think that's perhaps slightly easy to, to diagnose. Um, but what you do get is a lot of medically unwell people who've had medical reasons why they might have fallen and then broken their hip. And where I think the variety, the variation is between the services that different trusts provide is the level of medical input. And I have seen patients who've been whisked up to the orthopaedic ward perhaps too quickly, whereas a bit more time to, to take stock would have uh, allowed the medical issues to be tended to uh, or recognised. Mm. Um, so... I'm not arguing against the target, but I would like to see more provision for rapid medical input, rapid medical assessment. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you've got to. I suppose you, you've got to think of them as a an acutely unwell medical patient as well as acutely unwell surgical patient, haven't you? And, and have a service that's set up to at least a, a point of call for you to get that quick medical input into them. Well, I actually worked in a system once um, where the medical registrar um, was obliged to review every um, every person who broke their hip um, as part of the medical take. Okay, um, which I thought was an interesting model, um, and. It worked quite well in that the, the medical registrar usually could get there within a few hours. Presumably that medical registrar got phoned about that patient, mm-hmm. told about how they were, and so they can put them into their prioritisation like they would any other patient they're called about. Yeah. Um, and getting getting their input early as well as a as an orthopaedic surgeon's early. I think that you can see how it has value. Mm. And it's it's identifying the 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 fracture early and then making the referral as soon as the you know, because the moment you've diagnosed someone with a hip fracture, they're coming in and they're going to need surgery. Um, so, so waiting whilst you get all the blood results and everything before you make the referral doesn't doesn't actually make much sense. Um, so, it's as a, as a non-specialist, it's identifying the fracture and then making the referral straight away, um, so that you can you can start the process. Because you know, there's things we can do upstairs. We can put, you know, we we use a lot of nerve blocks um, in our unit. Um, and I've got a physician's associate who's fantastic at, at sort of chasing down anaesthetists and getting nerve blocks in um, amazingly quickly um, and really getting on top of pain um, and and sort of starting the process of getting better, actually, you know, um, as soon as possible. Can I just come in on that as well? I think the, the other part of that is that the orthopaedic junior team need to be reassured that uh, or feel confident that if some abnormal blood tests do come up, so they've been phoned up because someone's broken their hip and they said, yes, please feel free, send them up to our ward. They need to be clear that someone's going to support them if the you know, yeah, renal function's abnormal or the INR's very high or something's wrong that they don't know about or couldn't understand. Yeah, it's a two-way thing, isn't it? It's it's a it's very much that, that's this is where it comes down to that joint care model. It's it's very much, you know, the, there's there's bits that we can do and there's bits that we definitely can't do. Um and it's that that um having that that sort of joined up process. Okay, let's move on to the the second target, which uh, says that all patients with hip fracture who are medically fit should have surgery within forty eight hours of admission and during during normal working hours. The the target in the for the best practice tariff um, is uh, for surgery in thirty six hours. Um, so that's what all the units are trying to to get to at the moment. Um, and you know the best units are running at sort of eighty percent, ninety percent. I don't want to um, fill it up with stats, but every eight hours that you you delay operating on someone with a hip fracture, it adds another day to the length of stay. Um, so the national hip fracture database target is thirty six hours, um, and I think in in future, I think will be that will probably even st- even that will start to reduce over time. Okay, the third point says all patients with hip fractures should be assessed and cared for uh, with a view to minimising their risk of developing a pressure ulcer. No arguments from there. This is this is essentially comprehensive geriatric assessment, isn't it? I mean, we're going to go through all, all the points, but um, uh, we sort of touched on it when we were talking about orthogeriatrics in general, but this is what it is, isn't it? It's just comprehensive geriatric assessment for patients who've had fragility fractures. Can I just come in on that? On that? On that pressure sort point, I, I've worked in departments that have struggled with this before about the um, number of pressure ulcers that 
uh, a co- you know, that developing their patients. And uh, some of the work they looked at doing was about getting patients off trolleys in A and E and onto onto beds or proper mattresses at an early point. And that, and I think there probably is a role there for the junior doctor or for whoever's there in in um, in that environment to to make that point that it's important and that it should happen early. And I know that um, a lot of the nurses will be pushing for that as well. But I do think there's a role for us to, to say it, you know, to say this person's at high risk of developing a pressure ulcer, please can we get them onto the appropriate mattress now? Mm. There's also a role in there, I think, with nutritional assessment yeah. and, and um, sort of uh, assistance at mealtimes and... Um, prescribing nutritional supplements and dietitian referrals that I think comes down to us as, as the doctors as well. I think just to add to that, there's, there's a role for the, for the getting the pain relief right early on, um, particularly with, as you've mentioned, the input from anaesthetics in terms of blocks and things. If you're going to want to be putting these patients in the appropriate positions, they've got to be comfortable in them. Um, so again, it's, I think it's something, you, as you say, as, a, as the junior clerking this patient in, it's something you should push for. I think particularly as well with patients who can't communicate uh, as well, whether they're delirious or they have dementia um, or they have dysphasia, uh, very important to think about pain in those patients who might not be able to express it or express it in different ways um, because they are equally likely to be in as much pain as the people who can communicate, um, except um, will have difficulty um, making that known. Um, but the um, the point you raised about the the nerve blocks is um, is interesting because I did my uh, orthogeriatrics job last year and it wasn't something that I'd come across particularly. Um, mm. Whereas it it seemed to be used a lot, um, and I saw huge advantages in that. Not only in terms of getting patients pain free, but avoiding lots of systemic, uh, potentially toxic opioid analgesia. Yeah, definitely. It it um, reduces your opiate load. It reduces delirium. Um, it increases because the blocks, um, especially if you, you put an infusion pump on it, you can leave them in post-op for the first 24 hours and then you've got more pain relief for those that initial mobilization. Um, and so you get people out of bed much quicker. We, we ask for them in every patient um, on, on our unit and, and the, the, I think we run at about 60%, 70% pre-op. Um, but we're, we're unusual um, our anaesthetic department are very proactive and very pro-regional anaesthesia. And there's a regional anaesthesia fellow um, that they have um, who, you know, and there's a, there's a, in fact, there's a, um, a training course coming up with a, um, that's just been advertised uh, that they're running at East Surrey on the BGS block. That's good stuff. So that looks as, that sounds as though it's something that we're probably all going to be seeing more of uh, as it becomes more popular generally. Um, let's go back to the list then. Um, it, it, number four is all patients presenting with a fragility fracture should be managed on an orthopaedic ward with routine access to acute orthogeriatric medical support from the time of admission. This is essentially what we're talking about, isn't it? I think yeah. we've, we've already discussed that one. I think just the, the one thing on this point is interesting is that we, we early on in the discussion, we talked about the possibility of these patients any, in the future just coming to geriatrics wards and being cared for there. Um, but actually, as I've been listening to what we've been talking about today, there are a lot of services and um, speciality points that are unique to orthogeriatrics. So that early analgesia, the, the knowledge and the skills that the nursing staff have to have, which mm. 
the work, the, the close work with surgeons and, and, and anaesthetists, um, the need to always have an empty bed, really. Um, all of which, at the moment, I think an ordinary geriatrics ward might struggle mm. to provide. Um, and that if we did head down that road, I think it would need a lot of training for the staff or essentially the staff to move from the orthopedic wards to come to the geriatric wards because an awful lot of this is about having the right people in the right place for these patients. Um, I'd love if we then took their setting further and we started to truly adapt it for particularly patients who are likely to become delirious as well. You know, if you'd, you'd love it to see if you're, you went onto the orthopedic wards and they were well adapted for, for delirious patients as well. That would, that's in my mind, the next step of where you would take it. Um, but it's, it's just interesting that we sort of consider it inevitable. They'll end up coming to geriatrics wards when there's so many skills that are needed on the, in the ortho geriatric setting. Mm. I mean, I think the, it's likely that, that, that it'll be sort of hip fracture, hip fracture units, specialist hip fracture units. Um, but they, they will basically gain the geriatric medical and nursing skills rather than the other way around, I think. Um, but then there are other, you know, there are lots of other elderly patients with trauma who at the moment are, are sort of fall between two stools because they don't quite get the orthogeriatric input on a regular basis in most units. Um, and they're looked after by the orthopedic patient, uh, orthopedic staff, but they have complex needs and they probably, you know, they are a group at the moment that, that we're probably underserving a little bit. I, I suspect, though, that even in hospitals where the orthogeriatric service isn't as developed, if the clinical team on that ward, whether orthopedic house officers or SHOs, can better identify those problems, there will be help available, yes. even if it's not in the form of a, an on-site 24-7 orthogeriatric service. So that first step is being aware of the potential problems and getting better at spotting them. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit briefly about osteoporosis because point five uh, in the national targets is uh, says all patients presenting with fragility fracture should be assessed to determine their need for anti-resorptive therapy to prevent future osteoporotic fractures. Um, now, I suppose that this would make a, a whole topic for discussion, a podcast episode in its own right. You could talk about osteoporosis. Um, but what should people be doing on the on the ground day to day again at a, at a junior level um so identifying the fragility fracture because it may not always be hip fractures um and then as far as i'm concerned checking vitamin d levels and starting calcium and vitamin d that's what i want everyone doing okay and then um bisphosphonates then come on from that in patients who are either over 75 um and have had a hip fracture or a fragility fracture you can sort of diagnose them with osteoporosis on the basis of that or uh, for those patients under 75 some form of fracture assessment um which i think frax is probably the best of um or the easiest to use of those at the moment so what i want what i like from sort of non-specialists is, is an identification that, that there is a fragility fracture um which is something that's often missed and that's something that that i think um, is something that I'm noticing in the non-hip fractures that sort of people don't necessarily put two and two together that that this distal femoral fracture is a fragility fracture 
and therefore needs osteoporotic treatment. Um, <clears throat> and outpatient fracture clinic services are quite well set up with fracture liaison nurses these days. And often you're picked up if you go through the fracture clinic. But if you're admitted with your fracture, sometimes you don't get that osteoporotic treatment, uh, osteoporosis treatment rather. Um, so yeah, so from junior doctors, it's it's about identifying that there is a fragility fracture, checking um, vitamin D levels, and then replacing vitamin D calcium, and then thinking about bisphosphonate. Finally, then, we, we've already touched around this uh, earlier in the conversation, but the final point says all patients presenting with a fragility fracture following a fall should be offered MDT assessment and intervention to prevent future falls. Done well? Done badly? What do you think? Um, I think done quite well these days. Um, it's it's comprehensive geometric assessment again, isn't it? Um, and I think the, the both those last point five, uh, point five and point six are both pulled through into the National Hip Fracture Database, into the best practice tariff, um, where you need to do a bone health assessment and then some form of secondary prevention or assessment of falls risk. Um, and, yeah, I think it's done quite well. Your natural instinct is to consider their falls risk when you're thinking about where they're going to go once they leave mm. hospital and trying to address that as much as possible, uh, usually with the obviously the aim of getting them back to their environment in the safest possible way. Well, before we move on to the next topic, which um, builds on what we've just talked about, I have some of the figures here from the National Hip Fracture Database. And seeing as you so enjoy playing that game before, I think we'll uh, we'll ask you to play again. <laughs> Ian, how well do you know the National Hip Fracture Database? Uh, I know it fairly well. <laughs> now, without cheating, we're going to have to trust you on this. Okay. Without looking it up on your phone or your computer as you do this, uh, we're going to go through. The, we're, we're going to use the the latest one, which um, I'll be honest, I just found online today. Uh, I didn't, didn't know this beforehand. Uh, we're going to go through the six points that we've just mentioned, uh, and I'd like you to guess what you think the national average scores are in terms of how well we do in each of these targets. Okay, so number one, it was admission to orthopedic ward with four, within four hours. So not just in Ian's unit, which obviously sounds superb. Um, across the country, mm. what do you think the percentage is, Francis? I think it's. I think it remains quite difficult. I would say, um, I don't know, sixty percent. Pete. Yeah, I'm going to go. Not much. I'm going to sixty-six. Okay, Ian. Uh, I'm going to go a bit less actually because I know what ours is. Um, so. I'm going to go about 50%. It is 50%. Well done. Well done to the, the specialist. <laughs> okay. Number two, surgery within 48 hours and during working hours. So I know I know you said this is slightly different than the uh, best practice tariff, but yeah. uh, but within the 48-hour the target, working hours, how many do you think? You're agonising over this. I'm going to go, right, I'm gonna go in. I'm going to go 72%. 72 Ian, whilst, whilst Francis sort of <laughs> sweats in the corner. I'm going to go um, just over 80%. Okay. Um, I think 75. It's 86%. Whoa. Is it really? Yeah. Ian's wiping the floor with you. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ian can't see, but we're both crying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The percentage of patients developed bring pressure ulcers. Now remember, lower is better. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What do you think? What do you say? Ian, let, let, you can go first this time. Let's uh, see if the others follow your lead. <laughs> <laughs> I think. We are, it's, oh, I can't remember, it's between 25 and 3%, I think. Okay, Pete? Then I will go 3.5%. See, I, I would have gone worse than I would have said 6%. It's 3.5%. Oh, 
<laughs> Dr. Brock's off the mark. Okay. Um, number four, preoperative assessment by an orthogeriatrician. How many hit preoperative assessment? We didn't really talk about this in the discussion. Um, in fact, um, in fact, in fact, in the blue book, uh, the one the number four was all patients presenting with fragility fractures should be managed in an orthopedic ward with access to orthogeries. So the the national hip fracture database has changed this target slightly. So it's it's talking about preoperative assessment. Um, how many do you think? Um, eighty-five. Eighty-five. Oh, I've, I've well, no, maybe that's quite uncommon. So I would have said that forty-five. I'm going to go about sixty percent. It's forty-nine percent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <I win>. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not yes in the, in the sense of, <laughs> in the sense that it could be almost <laughs> twice that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> what proportion of patients then discharged on bone protection medication? 60. Okay, 60. We have 60. Any advance? 70. 45. It's 69%. Oh. Francis, you're going to give that one to you. And finally, percentage of patients receiving a falls assessment prior to discharge. Well, that's got to be very high. That's got to be high, yeah. Yeah. 95? I'm going to go 94. <laughs> 93? <laughs> Guys, it's 94%. Oh. Excellent. Oh, well done. That's too much. Well done, guys. <laughs> I enjoyed that. It's, it's a draw, it's fair. We, we, we love a draw. Okay. Um, okay. Let's build on the points we've just talked about and say very briefly, without wanting to get too gripey, um, are there any sort of pet hates that people have about this, about services that they've worked in or this particular area, or if you want to make it a bit more positive slant, things that you would like to see improved in general? I, not pet hates, but improved is... Again, I just think about the the junior doctors, particularly the most junior doctors, and um, I would like to see their seniors from the orthogeriatric side take as much of a, a mentoring role with them as possible. Um, because often, if it's if it's your first job it's, uh, it, that you ever do as a doctor, um, having someone sort of mentor you through the medical side of things is really useful. <laughs> Um, particularly as those doctors will often go on call and be having to see all types of surgical patients who often have medical problems. Um, so I appreciate that they are a lot of services are set up, as Francis has described, where it's the orthopaedic juniors who are looking after the patients and coming around with the orthogeriatric seniors. Um, I think um, I'd, I'd want to see there as really the orthogeriatrics having time and, and given the time on the wards to try and try and mental those juniors as much as possible because I do think they'll benefit a lot from it. Yeah, I, I think building on that idea I, I, and, and also building on what Ian said right at the beginning about um, why orthogeriatics is a is an interesting area is that there are, it's a really good learning environment for uh, medical trainees um, and also for geriatrics trainees in particular. You know, there are a number of areas that are extremely common. So, you know, falling over is extremely common. Not being able to walk very well is extremely common and becoming confused and incontinent. It is the geriatric giants and they are all over the place on all the geriatric wards. And, uh, and I think the, the relative, relative frequency with which those things occur means that you can see the same patterns develop over time. And it's a really powerful opportunity for medical doctors to learn about how to take a falls history, how to, how to think about falls prevention and how to, um, you know, look at um, managing delirium in, in acutely unwell patients. These are things that uh, opportunities lost, I think, for a lot of uh, a lot of departments that lack uh, trainees in medicine 
there. So I think that would be a great opportunity. There you go. Orthopedic wards, a honeypot for potential geriatricians. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, Ian, what do, you, what do you think as the, the specialist who's working in this area at the moment? I think it's one thing that leads on some bells. So I think it's seeing, uh, recognising that elderly patients are complex. And that sounds quite simple, but I think a lot of people don't understand that elderly patients are complex and have interacting conditions. And that's, that's, that's where the complexity comes, is that the conditions that they have interact with each other. Um, and as a result of that, then the thing that my annoyance is when um, patients there or doctors say to me, oh, this is a mechanical fall in the frail elderly person. We've covered this before and I'm sure it'll come up again. Yeah, we don't like mechanical falls, do we? No. So that's my annoyance is that that I think it's, it's, um, it's not actually respecting the the patient and their, and their complex sort of physiological changes. You know, this idea of having a number of problems and each impacting on one another. The thing that frustrates me often is when someone will come and tell me that something's happened or they've, they've decided that this person's got this one thing. And so they've treated it and ignored everything else at the same time. So that, you know, that they've got, um, they're a bit unwell, they've got an infection, they've also got really bad heart failure, but they've decided they're going to treat the infection and they're going to give them six litres of fluid or something. Uh, you know, irrespective of what other information there is. And uh, that idea of trying to balance uh, problems doesn't really enter the mindset. No, that, that no. Frustrates me. And, that, and that's where the problem list comes, doesn't it? And, and having some form of problem list that, that is a narrative that links stuff together um, that highlights the interactions between problems. And I think that one of the points for junior doctors involved in this is on the side of complexity, as, and I suppose something that's a bit of a hate for mine, is, is that every often these patients will be on lots of medications and every single one of those medications is probably going to interact in some way <laughs> with the process that they're going through in terms of the fracture the surgery, the preparation for surgery and the recovery after it. And that you really need to, you know, go through that entire list and consider what impact it's going to have on their time pre and post surgery um, and take a bit of time about it and not just either neglect, like not, not give them any of them, which I see quite a bit or give them all of them without thinking about what impact that's going to have on. So why don't we try and bring it together and sum up now and come up with our, our three Cody cast commandments. So I as chair will adjudicate if there uh, if there's more than three that we come up with. But uh, why don't we start off by uh, y- you saying if you if you had one thing each of you that uh, th- that you would like anybody who's a junior doctor who's perhaps listening to this podcast to take away and do better, what would that be? I think my first would be to consider hip fracture as a medical emergency and to think of it in terms of the the medical implications. Um, not just the obvious surgical implications. Does anybody want to elaborate on that or tell him he's wrong? I quite like no, that. No, I think he's right. I quite like that. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen early on um, in common with all medical emergencies, I think. You know, there's, there's that sort of uh, front-loading of investigations and tests and stuff that, that is common to all medical emergencies, and I think that's, that's very true with the hip fractures. So I think mine would be, as the junior, you're often the – the first on the scene, apart from maybe the A&E doctor with these doctors. And um, I would say act as someone who brings the team together because it is a team effort caring for these patients. There will be, um, there will be an orthogeriatrician, there will be an orthopedic surgeon, there will be specialist nurses, there will be anaesthetists and be the person who makes sure everyone knows about this patient, 
be the advocate for that patient, get them involved, get them involved quickly, um, and then let their specialist skills help that patient as quickly as you can. That's a really interesting one because I remember when I was at house officer, often feeling frustrated at the perception that a lot of what I was doing was logistics rather than any diagnostics or treatments. But actually, in unwell patients, particularly older patients with hip fracture, for example, it's those logistics and bringing everybody together that makes everything else happen. Um, and you then become the the main sort of medical advocate for that patient, don't you? I think it highlights the, the multidisciplinary nature of it as well, doesn't it? That, you know, the, the work of the therapist is as important, arguably more so, than sort of um, the medical or the orthopedic team um, in ensuring that these patients have a, a good functional outcome. Sure. Um, Ian, what would yours be? Mine would be um, asking why. So why, why did this patient fall today? Why wasn't it yesterday? Why isn't it tomorrow? What, what happened today to make the fall? And why did that fall lead to a fracture? I think if you can answer those two questions um, in detail, then I think you're a long way along managing the patient. I, I, I had two, and mine was one of those. Mine was taking a proper falls history. Um, mm-hmm. I've already mentioned mechanical fall, and, and I used to, <laughs> to see it a lot. And um, it would just tell you so much about a patient when you started to delve into why they'd actually fallen. Um, and often, uh, in fact, frequently, it was uh, never as simple as they just fell down because people don't just fall down without another reason. Um, I also had remember analgesia on my list, but I think I'll let that one go because we talked about that earlier on. So our three cask commandments would be hip fracture, is a, treat hip fracture is a medical emergency. Be the point, the main point of contact to bring other specialists, bring the team together. That's what we'll have, bring them together <laughs> uh, and take a proper false history. Are we happy with those? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that sums it up quite nicely. Um, in terms of other resources to direct people to, um, I'll put the link to the blue book on the show notes and also the National Hip Fracture Database, so you can go and double check those stats for next time. Um, <laughs> Ian, do you have any other resources? Do you think that uh, it would be beneficial to share with people? Anything you use to point people towards? Um. No, I think you're right. The Blue Book, the National Health Database. There is the entry on the BDS blog recently about the um, course that I think my anaesthetist would like me to mention. Um, but other than that, no, I think they're the, the two main resources. Okay. Well, if you send that through to me, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, um, grand. Well, I think we'll finish there. Thank you very much to my guests, Dr. Peter Brock, Dr. Francis Collin, and Dr. Ian Wilkinson. Uh, if you've got any comments or suggestions, you can find us online at aeme.org.uk forward slash Coticast, uh, or you can email us. Uh, nobody has done yet, so we'll be very excited if we got one. <laughs> uh, our email address is Coticast at aeme.org.uk, and we're also on Twitter at elderlymeded. Um Apart from Francis, the rest of us all have Twitter accounts. Those, those will be on the website in the show notes as well. If you want to get in touch with Francis, uh, tough. Well, you'll have, to, you'll have to do it through us. Um, so thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.